Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. I'm your host, Patrick Farnsworth. As always, thanks to the patrons of the podcast. Thank you so much for your support. I always need to thank you because you are really helping carry this work. And of course, there's a whole variety of ways that people can back and support this work. Subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts is a great way to do that. Sharing with anyone you feel would benefit from listening to these episodes. Going to the website, reading the transcripts, sharing it with anyone you feel would benefit from reading them as well. That's really helpful. So thank you to everybody for all the ways in which you contribute. But if you really do want to support this work financially, the best way, again, to do that is at Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash lastborninthewilderness. You can contribute a dollar or more a month there. By doing that, you'll get early access to these interviews. You'll get some other exclusive content there as well, including access to the Discord server. This podcast is completely listener-supported. So if you've really benefited from this work, please consider supporting it through Patreon. Clark from the Atlanta Community Press Collective joins me to discuss the Stop Cop City movement, which is also known as the Defend the Atlanta Forest or Defend Wilani Forest movement in Atlanta, Georgia. Clark is not a representative of this movement, but through his coverage and the coverage of this collective, is able to speak clearly to the concerns raised by activists and forest occupiers of the construction of the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center, also known as Cop City. The Atlanta Community Press Collective is an abolitionist, not-for-profit media collective. Their goal is to make the day-to-day workings of local government accessible to the public and to provide an independent voice in the local media landscape increasingly dominated by corporate interests. And before I really introduce this episode, I just want to thank the individual who helped me connect with Clark. Thank you so much. I know who you are. I'm not going to say your name, but thank you so much for connecting me to this individual and helping me get an on-the-ground perspective of what's happening. On January 18th of this year, Manuel Esteban Paez Terran, more affectionately and commonly known as Tortuguita, or Tort, was shot multiple times and killed by a Georgia State Police SWAT team while sitting cross-legged on the ground right outside their tent. Tortuguita was part of the ongoing Stop Cop City movement and a defender of the Walani Forest. Immediately after this occurred, a very routine and typical series of false statements were made by the police, indicating their officers were acting defensively to a mortal threat. The damn greenie had a gun. As Clark mentions in their description of these events, the multiple versions of the incident given by the authorities contradict what both body cam footage and an independent autopsy show. Whatever injuries the officers incurred during their raid were most definitely from friendly fire. Tort was shot in cold blood. The Walani Forest is one of the largest urban forests in the so-called United States. The land it resides on, like much of the area, has a rich and tumultuous history, steeped in the legacies of slavery and genocide. The land is part of the territories of the Muscogee Creek people, who in the early 19th century were largely dispersed and forced from their home to lands westward called the Indian Territories, in what is currently known as Oklahoma. The forced emigration from their lands is known as the Trail of Tears, a stark example and product of the federal government's decades-long 
multi-pronged war against the diverse native peoples of Turtle Island. The Great Muscogee Confederacy, through decades of colonial incursions, was fragmented. This land is also the site of the old Atlanta prison farm, which operated as a federal prison labor site for much of the last century. A straight bloody line can be drawn from the slave plantations of the pre-Civil War South to the modern carceral system in the United States. Remember, or learn if you haven't already, that the lauded 13th Amendment of the Constitution states, quote, neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction, end quote. Slavery in various forms has existed within the boundaries of this nation since its founding. It certainly existed in this prison, as the Atlanta Community Press Collective has researched and documented extensively. As they write in their article on the storied history of this site, quote, we feel the strong need to insist on our usage of the word history as something more than an abstract narrative. It is flesh and blood, the tales and songs of joy and sorrow and pain told by the people who lived it, and not just the numerical record-keeping of the structures that caused ongoing suffering which still benefit from this abstraction. End quote. I bring all this up because it's relevant to this movement to stop Cop City from being built. The forest defenders are drawn to this movement for a variety of reasons, and certainly, the ecological devastation the construction of this cop playground will produce is a central concern. But history speaks. The modern institution of policing in the U.S. is directly tied to the history of the Wilani Forest, despite the institution's claim to legitimacy. It has none. The murder of Tortuguita is part of an escalation of violence against those who put their bodies on the line. As Clark elaborates on in this interview, there have been dozens of arrests of forest defenders that have been charged with domestic terrorism. These indictments are meant to chill the movement, to bully, and in the case of Tortuguita, murder forest defenders and allies to let the police and the state clear-cut much of Wilani Forest and build this monstrosity. It is at this time especially that we engage in solidaristic support of the movement to stop Cop City and defend Wilani Forest from destruction. Clark mentioned some resources at the end of this interview as far as how to lend that kind of support to this movement, and I'm just going to mention them here at the beginning. First is, of course, you can email the contractors involved in this construction. That is something they mention. Uh, there's also the Stop Cop City syllabus, which provides a list of ways to get involved locally and also some education resources. But financially, there is a fund that goes to the forest defenders and things like the Week of Action, which they've done over the course of the occupation, uh, called the Forest Justice Defense Fund. And there's also the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, which is an organization that is providing bail bonds for those that have been arrested and detained by the police. Uh, so I'm gonna provide links to all of those resources in the description. I will be putting them on my website, lastbornthewilderness.com. I am also releasing a transcript of this interview as I release this as an audio podcast. So please go to lastbornthewilderness.com so you can read this transcript. You can also read it at my substack at lastbornthewilderness.substack.com. So please share the transcript, share this audio interview with anyone who is curious about this movement.
I want to first thank you for coming on. Um, for this interview, there's going to be a couple things that I want to do, which is first at the beginning discuss this movement for what it is, what it's addressing, what it's trying to oppose, what it's for, but also to provide, I think there's some deeper layers to this, some more historical context to this as well. However much you want to get into that, uh, we can certainly talk about it because in the immediate sense, the stop cop city movement, the defend Atlanta forest or the, um, uh, the Wilani Forest, its traditional name, uh, this movement is meant to stop a training center. It's officially called the Atlanta Public Safety Training Center, uh, which has been called Cop City. It's this incredibly <laughs> obscene, obscenely large uh, project that uh, is going to destroy uh, the Atlanta Forest and so there, there is that particular element to it. But again, there are some historical aspects to this of where that land is and what, it, what has happened on that land. Um, and I wanted to kind of go over that as well. But I think before we jump into that, I really want to know a little bit about you as much as you're comfortable sharing about your reporting and to talk about the Atlanta Community Press Collective and what the aims are of this collective. Yeah, so uh, the Atlanta Community Press Collective was uh, formed in uh, 2021, sort of just, just after. The, the cop city um, project was was getting going before the city council uh, that approved it. Um, we're an abolitionist press collective. Um, you know, we have no qualms about admitting like where we are coming from mm -hmm. uh, in terms of policing abolition. So um, we are not part of the stop cop city movement, but you know, certainly ideologically, we are very aligned with it. Mm -hmm. um, and, it is our goal to see this project stopped and and also to see the uh, the land swap, um, which is uh, the other part of the forest, to, to see that uh, project not continue. Um, so I, I joined the collective uh, officially um, uh, in 2022. Um, I had helped out before that, and the, the collective got its start uh, writing the history of of this the site. Um, this space used to be known as the Old Atlanta Prison Farm. Uh, so it was a, a labor farm for the better part of a of a whole century. Mm. Um, so the, the first big project uh, the collective did was write um, what is now known as the history of the the pro uh, of the uh, the history of the 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 land. Um, there were a couple reports previously, um, particularly one by a historian named Wooten that was disproven uh, through the research uh, early on. So. I helped uh, in a little bit of that capacity um, very early on with just a touch of the research. Largely was not involved in that. It was only this year that I came on board and, and started doing uh, more of the, the actual reporting. Mm. Okay. Yeah, it's good to get an idea of what where you're coming at this from and in the collective as well. Um, the reporting is excellent. Admittedly, I only became pretty recently aware of it. Um, and that's sort of my, you know, I think some of my blind spots that I have because I'm, I am geographically very distant from Atlanta. Um, I'm on the other side, of, quite literally on the other side of the country. So, but these issues are all intersecting and affects all of us, right? Because we're talking about the expansion of, of this training center, which is really a, uh, a place for police to do a variety of things involving training. Uh, and of course, one of the main concerns is like, well, what is the purpose of this beyond just sort of further militarizing policing? Um, in the Atlanta area, but also kind of setting an example for what other police departments, other 
um, you know, what, what police on the national level can really do, right, and what they can get away with. Um, so there's uh, national issues at play here, as well as the ecological issues. And I think that's deeply, uh, deeply held in the movement itself is that um, a forest is being destroyed, ultimately, a large swath of it is being clear cut in order to make way for, you mentioned, of course, this training center, but also there's the project that the land swap you mentioned involving a Hollywood production studio, if I'm correct. Um, so if, if you could talk a bit about just the, the actual proposal to build these facilities, this training center, as well as this Hollywood-esque studio thing, uh, if you could talk about maybe when that was first proposed, um, how much land it's going to take in comparison to how large the actual forested area is. Um, and yeah, go over some of the details of what this facility will have. Yeah, so the entire uh, size of, of this particular section of the forest is something like 700 acres. Um, the legislation that establishes Cop City uh, describes the overall property as 381 acres. And then... Um, <clears throat> The Black Hall side is something like 40 acres. Um, so in 2021, uh, the legislation was first proposed um, to, to use this space for Cop City. Uh, it had been part of a conversation that was being had behind the scenes. And this is very common for, for how Atlanta operates. So it's known as the Atlanta way, where a lot of these, these dealings are done in back rooms uh, between public and private interests. And then brought forth and essentially, you know, saw to the public as fait accompli. Um, so the mm. conversation had been going on for, I think, something like four or five years before that. They had identified several sites to, to build a new training center and then decided on um, the Old Atlanta Prison Farm site in the Wielani Forest as, as their intended site. Uh, the Atlanta Police Foundation, who is the one doing the actual uh, like fundraising for the project. They're the ones who have uh, leased the land from the city of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. uh, they shopped around their legislation to various city councilors. They found uh, a willing uh, participant uh, in Joyce Shepard, um, whose district is not near this property. In fact, this property does not have representation on city council. Mm -hmm. um, it is part of unincorporated DeKalb. So it is technically city of Atlanta, but there is no actual representation within the city for, for where this, this property is. Uh, so Joyce Shepard brought the legislation forward and uh, that began sort of a very uh, large electoral fight, um, which culminated in 17 hours of public comment before the vote. Uh, so this, the city council meeting that, that saw this vote, extended over the course of two days because of the, the amount of public comment that was given. And it was uh, like a 70-30 split um, against the project and for the project. And most of the, the folks who were calling in for the project uh, were definitely speaking off a, a script. Um, and they were either firefighters or, or uh, police or um, residents of an area of, of the city known as Buckhead. Mm has -hmm. tried to secede from Atlanta it's where most of the wealthy white folks live. So around the same time, um, uh, just prior to that, um, on an area of road called Boulder Crest, um, there was uh, uh, a space of land that was owned by Blackhall Studios and Ryan Millsap was the owner of Blackhall Studios. 
Um, and he intended to create a movie studio. Um, Atlanta's sort of the Hollywood of the South. Uh, movies and, and film industries is now a large part of uh, the goings on here. Um, its economic impact is debatable um, in terms of the tax breaks that we've given the film industry. But uh, so he clear cut the land or black hole, I should say, clear cut the land and then did an environmental study and found out that uh, uh, it could not properly support the uh, weight of the projected uh, proposed studio. So uh, they connected with a DeKalb County commissioner and swapped out their now clear cut land for um, a parkland, uh, which was then called Entrenchment Creek Park. This have changed the name to Weilani People's Park um, at this point. But uh, so they did a straight up land swap. And one of the things that should be noted about this now clear cut land is any time that it rains, it floods. Mm. And so this is, you know, pretty indicative of what's going to happen when we when we lose all this ground cover um, and forest cover uh, for that area. And that area in general is already very prone to flooding. The sewer lines get backed up mm-hmm. out onto the roadway anytime that there's a heavy rain. So it's, it's already a, a large flood concern in the area that's only going to be exacerbated uh, through projects. Right. Um, so the Ryan Millsap owns. Um, uh, Black Hall, which he then sold uh, to another equity or to an equity firm, um, and he took the name. Um, his former studio is kind of just south of the forest um, and is now called Shadow Box. But in the sale, he retained the swap land and still intended on building um, a studio there. That particular section is caught up in a land battle or a legal battle mm-hmm. about the swap, which is thus far stopped his ability from doing any construction mm-hmm. on that area. Okay. Wow. So yeah, there's several different things happening simultaneously. Um, but in regards to this um, training facility for policing, um, what are what exactly are the reasons? Like, so I mean, let me just read something here. This is actually, this is funny because it's from the Wikipedia page on the subject, but it does sum it up nicely. And there are citations here, so it is backed up by evidence here, but um, it states that um, in regards to the scope of policing in Atlanta City, uh, over one-third of Atlanta's budget in 2022 went to the police department, which is about $250 million. So that was last year. Atlanta is among the most surveilled cities in the United States. So that seems to be the context of what policing is like in that area. Um, and then to add on top of that, they want to build this, you know, this incredibly large training center. And I think one of the things that I read elsewhere, and I don't have it written down here, but it just stuck in my mind was that because of the uh, uprisings in 2020, uh, after the death of George, or the murder of George Floyd, as well as Rayshard Brooks, who was in the Atlanta area when when he was murdered by police. Um, the Atlanta police apparently have low morale now. And so this sort of thing is being used as like, well, they have low morale, like they don't feel appreciated. So <laughs> let's build a gigantic training facility for them so we can have a mock city and do all these like kind of training exercises. So if you could speak to just like what the reasons are for why 
that have been given as to why this facility is necessary in, in regards from the, like the city of Atlanta and the in this uh, what is it called the Atlanta Police Foundation? Uh, sure. So their their old training facilities um, were in sort of were run down according to them, which really leads us to believe that they were just not well kept. Hmm. Um, so when justifying the need for this space in terms of of needing a new facility in general, they they made claims uh, like there are several inoperable sinks, uh, broken toilets, mold, um, all of these things that are just like general upkeep that you would want to do on your own facilities um, that they neglected to do. Um, so that was the reason why they needed to build a new space and the reason why it needs to be this expansive uh, 86 acre essentially cop playground they they do talk about they don't say directly that it's for morale right um, but they do say that it's for retention hmm. um so atlanta at this point has no problem saying that you know its police officers are most well trained and, and touting the ways they go above and beyond uh the minimum training requirements uh but they say that this facility will enable them to both retain officers which are leaving for other uh departments or leaving the force entirely uh and also attract other officers and and by attract other officers they mean new officers locally but also out of state um they projected uh 43 of of apd officers that will come and train at this facility would be from out of state Hmm. okay yeah it seems like the again one of the things i mentioned earlier is the the uh, worry is that this type of training facility will be mimicked in other places like it's sort of like um if once you set an example of like this is how policing training should be done then yeah you know new york might want to put a facility in or you know some other major city other metropolitan area might be like yeah like let's like who you know down here in in the pacific northwest where i live i can imagine that people out in seattle or in <laughs> portland or somewhere in california is going to be like yeah let's put in a gigantic training facility as well and and part of what i want to get at too is just to contextualize as i mentioned with the sort of the the massive level of of civil disrupt that occurred after the murder of George Floyd and as I mentioned with Richard Brooks in Atlanta, um, it feels like a lot of what's happening now that we're about two years on from those events um, is this is all feels like a reaction to that, right? It feels to me, and I know you, I, I'm just curious what your opinion is on this, but it feels to me like they're like, okay, we had this incredibly disruptive thing where policing as an idea and as an institution was attacked by a lot of people um, from a from a kind of variety of different political backgrounds even. Um, and now <laughs> we have these radicals camping in the forest trying to stop us from building this facility. There, there seems to be a feeling of like, we have to get everything back in order again um, and make sure that this type of thing never happens again. Um, how, what do you feel about that? that? That's really my opinion, but I'm curious what your thoughts are about that as well. I would say the timing definitely backs up that that theory, and that is one that is pretty commonly held. And I would say it's it's a theory that favored myself. Um, mm-hmm. This was this was a way to to reinforce the fact that policing and police are still important, uh, and you know are not 
under threat of being defunded or or having to face any real consequences um, from from their actions and any real impact from the mass uprising that we saw mm-hmm. um, in 2020. Um, and then on your on your point that uh, of of this having sort of national implications, um, I think this does mirror you know sort of the militarization of police, uh, where it started slow like. Police weren't getting um, armored vehicles like in mass to begin with. It was some departments started buying them, and other departments started to see that and, and wanted them themselves. And so now you have tons of like some people with an MRAP, which seems entirely unnecessarily and excessive. Mm-hmm. And we've also seen this. Um, a, a large part of, of our research comes from uh, Georgia Open Re- uh, Records Act requests. Uh, so we're able to actually see emails between the city and and the Atlanta Police Foundation. And we see this play out um, pretty frequently where they identify something that they think is cool or neat at another training facility. And and that's what they say they want here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this will undoubtedly have that skating effect uh, down the line as as other police departments, you know, want this new shiny thing. Yeah. Yeah, it feels it feels like so. So I mentioned, of course, the aftermath of these uprisings in 2020, but also it's just the larger decades long context of what happened after 9-11 where um, and we'll get into some of these, you know, terrorism, uh, domestic terrorism charges that have been pressed against um, some of the people involved in this movement, the Stop Cop City movement. Um, We'll get into that in a moment, but I, I really just want to kind of contextualize this as well, where. Yes, there has been this increased militarization of police over the past two decades, um, and even before that, but especially in the past two decades. Um, and it just feels like the police more than ever are truly, and this has, again, been true for a long time, particularly for communities of color, for black communities, for poor communities. People have acknowledged <laughs> for a very long time, and this is like the Black Panthers were saying this shit back in the 70s, right? Which is that the police are like an occupying force in communities, um, like a military force, right? It feels like you're in colonized territory, which is absolutely true. And now it even feels even more like that's the, that's the sense of all this is like they're actually, it feels like they're training on the level that the military would train for a kind of a counterinsurgency campaign, and that these training facilities, like actual mock villages or mock, mock city, mock village that they're trying to build, it's actually like helping them train for future, you know, civil disobedience and, uh, you know, mass uprisings that may come in the coming years and decades, right? It kind of just has that that implication, to me at least. Um, curious if you have similar feelings. I would say that is definitely uh, a, a, a driving force here. And, and that is, you know, um, Prop City... The name is, is both an ode to there. There was another uh, fight. This was in Chicago, um, where where their slogan was "No Cop Academy." Uh, Chicago, and that was that was going on like right as the twenty twenty was happening. And um, I think ultimately, um, police were successful in, in at least getting their projects started. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think it's been finished yet, but they're certainly further along than than Cop City. So as Sort of a recognition of, of that, you know, as well as an understanding that there is, you know, an actual small mock here, complete with cities like stores and, and apartment 
complexes and things that you would typically, you know, need to uh, engage in if, if you're suppressing some sort of um, protest movement or, or general uprising. Um, so this, that is exactly what this is intended for. Now, of course, the Atlanta Police Department is going to argue that this is for, you know, live shooters and, and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. But what we see far more often is, is them responding to general unrest or, you know, uh, street racing or, or things where just the general populace are, are doing things and, and not these of shooter situations. Right. That those are inc- incredibly uncommon for, for APD at least to respond to, you know, before they're finished. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, it's just, it's just worth acknowledging what this all will be in material, in a material sense, but also just sort of represent you know, representing the kind of time we're in right now when, in the context of what just happened very recently and what's happened over the course of really quite, quite literally decades and centuries in this country. Um, so let's talk about when this movement stop cop city. I know we talked about the, the Hollywood studio, uh, as well, but particularly in protesting and occupying, uh, the forest, uh, could you talk about when, I can't remember if we talked about this already, but like when that started and what are some of the kind of general tactics that have been employed over this time to prevent the furthering of this project of the construction of this training center? Yeah, so there was an initial occupation um, in right around November of 2021 um, that was broken up about a month later and then reconstituted uh, in early, in January 2022. So from January 2022 until January 18, 2023, there was a continuous occupation of the forest. Um, police would engage in raids and, and people might have left the forest you know, for several hours or time, but they would always return. It wasn't until the, the deadly raid that, that killed Portuguese on the 18th that um, an actual occupation ended. Mm. Um, so over that time, there have been a variety of, of methods and tools used, of course, like peaceful nonviolent direct action of literally just putting your body uh, where construction is supposed to be uh, was the heart of much of it. Mm-hmm. Um, there was also more militant action. Their sabotage was uh, fairly common. Um, but then there were nonviolent direct actions like protesting at houses of contractors or funders. Uh, at one point, activists like, leafleted a search um, where one of the, I believe it was a cop city contract, um, where he attended church. Mm. Uh, they would put out flyers in neighborhoods saying, hey, this is your neighbor and this is what your neighbor is doing. Mm. Um, then there are, of course, calling campaigns, email campaigns, and um, all sorts of, of, you know, variety of tactics from a tool bag. Um, but of course, the one that will always be focused on by police in the state is already, you know, sabotage. Right. Yeah, when they burn vehicles or or buildings or or other infrastructure, right? Um, and but I would I also want to kind of highlight because this is um not emphasized as much by the state, of course, is the tactics that they employ. So uh, certainly it came to everyone's attention. Uh, what happened? As you mentioned, uh, Tortuguita, um, 
as as they have been uh, named. Uh, their name is Manuel Esteban Paez Teran. Uh, they were murdered by police officers. Um, and just very recently, um, a, an autopsy report came out from an independent kind of uh, autopsy that was done. Um, indicated several really significant things that contradicted the story that the police gave about what happened. If you could talk about what the police were saying, what happened, because again, there was some, um, there was some footage from a body cam, but it wasn't actually of the, the officers that were involved in that killing. But there were other officers who had made remarks, again, recorded on the body cam footage that indicated something quite different happened than what the officers and what the police department was saying. So could you talk about that incident and give us some of the details of what the police said and then what inevitably came out from this autopsy report? For sure. Uh, so the police narrative, or I should clarify, the GBI and uh, GSP, the state narrative, um, actually changed a couple times over the first 24 hours. The initial narrative uh, was that uh, Fort shot first and fired from cover and surprised officers who then returned fire. And then they later changed the story and it, this was within 24 hours, changed the story. Um, Fort was being given direction by officers and you know opened fire while being given direction. Mm. Um, which if you've ever watched a, a police officer react to anything, they're typically not very slow on, on their triggers. No, yeah. So one would imagine that if uh, they were holding a gun um, and brought it up to aim at an officer, that it would have been difficult to get off shots. I'm not saying it's not impossible, and I certainly don't want to take away the agency from courts um, if they did indeed make that decision. Mm -hmm. um, it's just It doesn't seem like the facts are bearing that. Right. Uh, so uh, the first autopsy was done by um, the Cab County um, and uh, the Cab County uh, coroner's office, um, who told the family, um, gave them an early detail that uh, Port was shot over 13 times, but provided no further detail. Mm -hmm. And it should also be said that at this point, um, per, uh, per the state, that autopsy still hasn't been completed. Um, the the write-up hasn't been done. Obviously, they, they are finished with Fort's body, and it was then given to the family to do a second autopsy. Mm, okay. They still haven't provided their autopsy to the state as far as we have been told. Mm. Um, so the second autopsy was uh, done actually by um, a former GBI uh, medical examiner. Um, and that autopsy found that Short was, uh, Tort was shot 14 times. Um, the trajectories of those bullet uh, wounds indicated that Tort was seated, uh, slightly cross-legged, and um, at some point during the, the shooting, and the shooting took place over tens of seconds. It, it was quite long, um, if you listen to the body cam footage, um, from the, the initial burst of fire to the end um but at some point during that court did raise their hands uh up and sort of facing towards their chest so palms inward um mm -hmm. that autopsy noted that there was no gunpowder residue found it did note that gunpowder residue could have been washed off by the previous medical examiner but uh it did say that that was unlikely uh 
And then the body cam footage. Um, so the uh, Georgia State Police, uh, their SWAT team were the ones who shot Tortuga. And Georgia State Patrol is the no body cam requirement on their patrolmen or their troopers, as they call them. Mm. Their argument for that is that everything that uh, GSP does would happen in front of their cruisers. And since their cruisers have uh, cameras on them, they don't need body cameras themselves. Mm, okay. <laughs> uh, so that is why there were, there is no body camera footage from the GBI. However, uh, we know that there was a helicopter, there was a drone in the area. There, there are some other means of, of potentially um, seeing what happened. Um, mm. But what we do have are body camera footage um, videos from um, the Atlanta Police Department's Apex team, um, which is a specialized team. It's, uh, it's actually um, similar to the Titans team that killed Tyree Nichols uh, earlier this year. Mm. Uh, in fact, Apex replaced the Red Dog team, which is actually what uh, Titans was was inspired by. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have an Apex officers, uh, a group of Apex officers sort of in the videos. We see them clearing tents, and then you hear um, an initial round of gunfire, and then a very long sort of sustained round of gunfire. Um, the officers kind of wend their way through the woods, um, and at one point you can hear one of the officers say, you fucked your own officer. You fucked your own officer. Um, so that was very noticeable, and uh, we we tweeted that out uh, the the night that the videos came out, uh, and that prompted the uh, Georgia Bureau of Investigation, who was both partaking in that raid um, and is in charge of the uh, supposedly independent investigation into the killing of Tortuguita. Um, they tweeted out that extemporaneous commentary by. Uh, an officer isn't really evidence of anything. Um, mm. And later we found out that they, uh, so APD had initially promised to release more videos as they became available, um, but the Georgia Bureau of Investigations and the state's attorney general office uh, leaned on uh, the Atlanta Police Department and um, the law department of the city of Atlanta, respectively, to stop uh, the release of any more videos. Um, so we haven't had any more videos, but there was another notable aspect of, of those videos is after the killing of Portuguese, they, they continue to clear tents and there was a very large focus on not having frostbite, uh, amongst the officers, which we had not seen prior to that. So another point that is indicative that they were aware that friendly fire was likely the cause. Mm, okay. Um, being shot okay yeah so there's uh obviously this happens over and over again when police do something um like this where they kill some innocent person um they yeah they provide uh (laughs) they they change their story uh because as more evidence comes out you know they have to kind of reformulate exactly how to how to save face and so this isn't at all surprising but what is i think a bit jarring and surprising is that uh, this uh, person, Tortokoita, would have been just quite literally defenseless sitting 
um, and getting shot and killed um, for probably, I mean, again, there's no evidence to indicate they had a firearm, that they were at all doing anything that would have, um, you know, that the police could ever use as justification for for killing them. Um so it is to me this is uh feels again it feels like a kind of general escalation against the occupiers of this forest um in in opposition to this training facility this training center. So the um I guess the general question I would ask next is is after this killing occurred uh what was the response of the occupiers and then ultimately what came after that up to more recently i know there were some quite a few arrests that that happened very recently um if you could talk a bit about like exactly what happened to the movement after this murder and then uh yeah kind of bringing us us up more to the present day yeah um so post january 18th um a well we should i guess go back to uh december 13th when the initial round of domestic um, happened there was a raid in the forest don't have the exact number in front of me. I want to say it was somewhere between six and eight individuals who were arrested for domestic terrorism for the first time. And that sparked sort of a growing national attention to what was happening in the forest mm-hmm. um, and condemnation for for these overbearing charges, um, which only, you know, grew uh, exponentially um, after police killed Portuguese. Uh, so post-January 18th, there was this massive pouring in of support sort of from leftist groups nationally. Um, there were groups that were engaged in uh, defensive um, activists from, from January 20th, from Trump's inauguration in 2016, um, who began pouring in legal support. Um, there were organizers from, from other you know, national orgs that began to uh, offer sort of organizing help. Um, and, and of course we had, uh, the national notoriety and, and more press and more media giving coverage of this. Um, we also had a tonal shift in, in local media coverage, which, you know, had previously been pretty, um, antipathetic towards, uh, activists. And now, um, we're definitely a little, little stronger, um, in, uh, their condom, not their condemnation of acting in their, uh, in their doubt of the police narrative. Right. Um, so those were pretty large shifts in, in what was happening. Um, so activists had, had pulled out of the forest and, um, a decision was made, um, to host, uh, a week of action. So this was their fifth week of action. Um, these week of actions have typically been where they try to invite people from around the country who are interested in in land defense and things like that come on down and uh, essentially camp in the woods for a week and do protests and um, there's always you know music raves and, and things like that. Uh, so it's it's a week of fun and also a week of protest and and um, things right. of that nature. So. For this fifth week of action, uh, I would say this was the largest one yet. Uh, that was called for March 4th through 11th. Um, and it marks a return to the forest um, on the first day of March 4th. Returns uh, set up camps 
um it's it it really like sort of joyous day there was there was definitely moments of um morning there's a, a shrine to Portugita in the parking lot of Wulani People's Park that you you can't help but see when you come in and um so I was watching as people would walk by and and recognize what that was and you know invariably they'd stop and, and have a moment of remembrance which was you know incredibly touching to see at the time and still to this day um and then they kicked off uh, a two-day music festival um which was uh, arguably the largest draw of the entire week. That was, you know, I would say the centerpiece thing was having this two-day music festival with some fairly well-known um, bands uh, showing up. So uh, that, that first day, Saturday, went off without a hitch. Uh, and then the second day, uh, music festival started at noon that day. There was a bouncy castle in the middle of the field where it was being held. Um, mm. And that that to me like set the tone of okay yeah this is going to be that sort of lighthearted fun day mm-hmm. and it it was um for the first few hours for the first five hours or so everyone was just kind of enjoying themselves uh and then a call went around um or word started to go around camp that that um there was going to be some sort of direct action um so at about five o'clock about 200 people gathered um and marched from um this part of the forest was about a kilometer and a half away to where the construction had started, where they were doing. Uh, at this point, they're doing erosion control work. They marched that pathway. It's about a 30, 45 minute march and then engaged in sabotage, essentially. And, and any of the infrastructure that was on the site was burned down. And then they returned uh, and sort of dissipated into the forest, which sparked a overwhelming police response i would say this is you know even from 2020 this i think is the largest police response that i've ever seen um there were several hundred officers uh came into the forest and affected arrest what seems like random they arrested or they detained 35 people they let 12 of those people go um, from everything that we understand um, those 12 individuals were locals. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other 23, only one of them was local. And they've used this sort of outside agitated narrative. So it, it does seem like they were fluffing the numbers to, to really drive that narrative. But they charged all 23 of them with domestic terrorism. Mm. Yeah. And it, it can't be stressed strongly enough, like how random these arrests were. And they're, largely would have been no way for police to know who had partaken in this activity and, and who was just there to attend a concert. Um, eyewitness reports were, you know, said that anyone who, who started to run um, was arrested, which I don't know if you've ever been charged at by police, but <laughs> your instinct is, is to run away from an armed individual running at you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. So these people are been charged with domestic terrorism and i think as i mentioned earlier this sort of post 9-11 world where you know early i I remember back in the 2000s there i think there was quite a bit of um yeah uh, sort of green activism uh people that were involved in these kind of movements and they did engage in various forms of sabotage arson things like this um the fbi investigated them found out who they were 
and there were several of these activists that were charged with as you know as domestic terrorists um, under these sort of post 9/11 laws that were uh, that were passed. Um, and it seems like we're seeing this this happen um, in this situation as well, um, where yeah, people and again these these charges are so. Didn't I hear something about people being charged based on the fact that they had mud on their shoes or something like the, the sort of circumstantial evidence they used for why they were up to no good was something around how dirty they were or something like that. Am I correct in remembering that? Yeah. Mud on uh, shoes or clothing um, was mm. one of, one of the reasons there was also a, one of the reasons was they were carrying metal shields, oh, um, right. which I, I had seen, you know, they, there were shields, uh, around the camp because at the first day they anticipated, you know, basically like a riot line of police and they brought, you know, the plastic water barrel shields. There mm. were no metal shields that, that I saw. But um, for the mud, you know, the day before the week of action kicked off, we had a tornado warning in the city of Atlanta and a massive rainstorm. Mm. So not only are you in a forest, you're in a forest that had just been drenched by rain. Um, and it is impossible not to be coated in in mud and dirt. Um, and you're at a music festival where people are, are sitting down, both, you know, mm-hmm. you're sitting down on a field that's just been soaked. You're probably going to come up with some mud. Right. Um, so the the evidence is incredibly flimsy, and it was commented by several of the attorneys, um, the defense attorneys, that it seemed like these charges were essentially copy pasted from one defendant to the other mm-hmm. and um, that's definitely indicative of uh, a lack of solid grounds for these charges right yeah it, it's um it seems like i wonder how many of these charges can be held up in court though you know i, I wonder how much of this is a uh, merely to yeah it's like a chilling effect right i mean with the killing of Tortuguita, the murder of, of of them and the terrorism charges, the domestic terrorism charges that they're putting on these people. Um, it seems like another intimidation tactic, um, right? Is that kind Certainly, of the, yeah. the general kind of feeling about that? This is definitely um, a means to to chill and, and end the movement. Uh, it is meant as a disruptive force. Um, and this is this is borne out actually by communications um, from the Atlanta Police Foundation to their board and donors, uh, and the foundation to contractors uh, who are supposed to build this project. Um, there's uh, they are expecting another round of indictments to come down, and APF told their board that uh, construction will begin when these indictments come down. So you know they believe that that this whatever next round of indictments are, they believe that it will be the thing that ends the movement um, because people will be in jail. Yeah. Uh, so there's certainly this, this fear tactic being used by these charges. And I would say most of the charges from, from Sunday and, and probably several of the, or a lot of the previous charges won't end up having uh, guilty verdicts, but the intent is to, to stop this in the interim. They don't really care what happens in two years when these go to trial. They want this movement ended now. 
Um, yeah. And of course, all of these repressive tactics are having the opposite effect and, and only serving to highlight you know, what's happening in Atlanta and, and bringing national attention and international attention to it and bringing support from national and international sources. Right. Yeah. Um, what is the proposed, I don't know if we mentioned this already, but when is like, <laughs> obviously this is intended to delay and the uh, sorry the the movement itself is intending to, to to ultimately delay get in the way and muck up the sort of construction of this training uh this training center so uh the question i guess i have is what is the proposed date of the beginning of the deforestation of this region uh when is this project meant to be constructed i mean what what is the kind of timeline here as far as that goes yeah um so i should say the original timeline was for it to open in the end of, uh, I believe, 2023 or, or at some point during 2023. Mm-hmm. Um, so and construction was supposed to start you know, all the way back in 2020. So all of these protests have had a significant impact on delaying. In uh, January, uh, they received their land disturbance permit um, and were able to engage in, in essentially phase one um, work, which is installing erosion control and things like that so there has been some clear cutting around essentially the exterior of the of the site um, mm-hmm. to install silt fencing and some other security measures uh, but they're not allowed to begin clear cutting until the cap county has come out and seen you know their erosion control measures and deemed them appropriate um, and then they're they're able to disturb the land mm-hmm which right. would be the clear-cutting phase. Um, so at this point, they've said that that process won't begin until after these indictments come. That conversation or those emails that revealed that happened early in February. Um, I'm not sure at this point uh, until we get another batch of, of emails uh, through open records requests, sort of where there is at. But, uh, it does still seem like things are on hold until um, they believe the movement has, has chilled sufficiently. Mm, okay. um, their current projection that they're telling their board is uh, late 2024. Okay. Um, and that, that would kind of bear out with the initial projections. They, they think, you know, a little under two years is how long it would take to open enough of the site to, to say that, it, or to finish it up site to say that. It's- right. Yeah. So it's, um, it's quite remarkable how people are willing to put their bodies on the line and face these charges. I mean, I obviously that's not ideal and anyone in that situation would be very afraid of, of being put in that kind of to be detained in that way. Um, that's, that's very frightening, but you know, the, the kind of courage it takes to do this is, is commendable. And, you know, there are so many ways in which people can support this movement and uh, speak against it. I'm curious on two levels. I'm curious about, what people who are not in Atlanta who can't necessarily travel there and support it in a physical sense, uh, the ways in which we, I, I know that you're not a representative of the movement itself, but from what you know, as far as how to support this movement to stop cop city, um, what are some of the things that can be done, uh, for, for me, for instance, I'm, you know, on the other side of the country, uh, aside from just speaking up about it, uh, what can people do to, to push back against this sort of repression by the police. Yeah, of course, speaking up about it is huge. Um, emailing, you know, contractors, they're 
there are offices of these contractors around the world. Um, there's a, a great resource called Stop Crop City Syllabus or City Syllabus um, that will provide a list of, of ways to, to get involved like locally and how um, also you know education resources and, and whatnot. But um, financially there is a fund that goes to the forest defenders um, to you know, things like the week of action called the Forest Defense Fund. Um, and that is hosted on something called Open Collective. Um, and then there is the Atlanta Solidarity Fund, which is uh, the organization that is providing um, the bail funds and the lawyer fees, uh, paying lawyer fees for all of the defendants. So if you get arrested, you know, and engaged in a First Amendment activity here in, in Atlanta and, and in Georgia, the Solidarity And it, it should be said that these domestic terrorism charges have, have ranged from uh, this last batch that's actually started to come around to only $5,000. Previous uh, uh, defendants, uh, their bail costs of, uh, were $355,000. Wow. Um, so the Solidarity Fund is you know, doing incredible work and, and will always be um, an important resource and, and definitely needs funding that um, typically, you know, when when activists do fundraisers, typically it is for the solidarity. Yeah. Yeah. This is just, um, again, it just as much support as these people can, can get for doing this is so important. And, you know, again, I, I think I mentioned this at the beginning and it certainly will be highlighted when I release this as a full episode, um, when I record an introduction, but to really just highlight how, I think for a long time, you know, we've had these movements that were specific, that seemed sort of cloistered in the sort of environmental movement or like, you know, kind of a, a they're not actually separate, but sort of seen as like, this is about stopping clear cutting for, you know, logging companies and the destruction of these old growth forests and things like this. And this forest, by the way, in Atlanta is not an old growth, old growth forest, but it is an ecosystem and it is fairly intact. And it is one of the last, I think, like so-called like urban forests in the, at least in the greater United States, as far as I know, right? So it's a very unique thing, has its own incredible history. And, you know, the deeper, uh, the deeper part of this is to protect the forest, not only for obvious reasons involving kind of the environmental concerns, um, but this is also, you know, the traditional land of the uh, the Muscogee Creek people too. I mean, you look at the history of what happened to them and how they were dispelled and and forced off of that territory, off of that land back in the 19th century during what are called the Indian, you know, so-called Indian Wars. You know, with Andrew Jackson. Um, you know, there there's a deep history here, and that land should not only just be defended for the sake of protecting it for all of us, for the sake of ecology. Uh, but also as as an act of resistance against sort of settler colonialism, the logic of settler colonialism as well. So this this is such a deep, multi-layered uh, concern and issue. And it intersects again, it intersects with with the expansion of policing, the surveillance state, with again, concerns around climate change and, and to sort of ecology. Uh, so, I just really want to highlight how for a long time we could have had like the concerns around policing and the concerns around environmentalism as almost seemingly separate activist issues. But this is one of those 
emblematic examples of how those issues are not separate and they overlap in so many significant ways and that defending this movement really should speak to the ways in which these movements are connected and these concerns are connected as well. Yeah, certainly the intersectionality of this, you know, from racial capitalism to militarized policing, environmentalism, mm-hmm. to, to even housing inequality. Mm. All of these things have, have, were really a, a bonding point um, that, that gave the movement sort of sustainability in its, in its early phase. And uh, as it's gone on, you know, people might be drawn for, for whatever unique interests that they, they previously had coming to the force and learning, you know, how all of these impacts are playing out, uh, expanded their, their understanding of the interconnectedness, you know. Of course, I, I think you and I would say that all of these things, you know, discreetly elsewhere are, are all part of the same larger uh, that is definitely driven home here with this, this movement and these projects. Right. Well, um, I really just thank you again for going over all this information. There's again, there's probably so much more we could discuss about this. Um, could take up a whole other hour of conversation. Um, but I think this generally for me at least gives me and, and I think for the listeners an overview of the issue of the subject of what's at stake here and uh, the various ways that people can support. And I'll be sure to direct people to those resources um, in whatever way that people can help and support this movement, prevent this kind of atrocious thing from from being built um, and, and sort of the broader implications that come with it. So Clark, I really just want to thank you so much for your time. Thank you for providing this information for the work that you do uh, on this subject. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. If you would like to learn more about my work, you can go to my website, lastbornthewilderness.com. Everything you need to know will be there. If you would like to support my work, there are a few ways to do that. The first thing you can do, of course, is subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is on numerous platforms, so wherever you listen to podcasts, it should be there. So consider subscribing. And if you'd like to support this work monetarily, there are a few ways to do that. The first is through a one-time donation through PayPal and Venmo. Go to paypal.me slash lastbornpodcast. Or you can find me on Venmo at lastbornpodcast. And if you would like to support my work on a regular basis, on a monthly or yearly basis, you can do that through Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash last born in the wilderness and if you support my work there you will gain early access to these interviews before i release them publicly Um, you will find other exclusive content there as well so to everyone that is a supporter of my podcast however you choose to do that thank you very very much if you would like to leave an audio message that can be featured on the podcast you can do that through two means you can call the phone number 208-918-2837 and leave a message up to three minutes long please let me know what your intention is with the message so that i can then choose to feature it or not feature it on the podcast if you would like to also just go to my website lastbornthewilderness.com you'll find a link at the top of the page That'll let you drop an audio file if that is preferable. And that is it, everybody. Thank you so much again for listening to this episode of Last Born in the Wilderness. Have a great week.